it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 751 for November 12th, 2022. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchatz, and we are finally off summer break. We're getting back to programming by stealth with installment number 140. Welcome back, Bart. Hello, hello, hello. Um, yeah, this is not even the episode I thought I'd be writing for you. Because um, I, I sat down to get started back in, right? Because... When we went on hiatus, we had finished what I thought was all of the prep work before I could start writing code code for translating the, my password library from Perl to JavaScript. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to set up the Git repository and I'm going to start writing my branching policy and all this stuff. And the first episode we'll do is about how the project is set up and how people can contribute and stuff. And then I was like, and so the design for the, oh, the design for the, I don't have the design. <laughs> so, well, let's start anyway, Bart. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So let's start coding before we have a design. Oh wait, yeah. So many, I was many like, years okay, ago, I, I got I, inter, inter, I told Bart this is way long one, but I'm going to intervene here anyway to tell a story that uh, many years ago I had a, a test done on me on a uh, a management leadership kind of model thing, and uh, you answered a bunch of questions and divided by the the square root of your mother's maiden name and that sort of thing, and you came <laughs> up, you got four numbers, and you were they mapped you on these four axes, and the four quadrants were. Um, uh, data gatherer, planner, oh, I forget what the third one and then the fourth one was due. And my box was 100% in due. It had just a tiny little bit of planning, but no data gathering at all and no and very, very little planning. It was just like, I'm just going to, I might not be right, but I'm going to get something done. <laughs> yeah. So I'm perfectly comfortable I, I, I'm much just more start. of a planned person. Yeah. yeah well, I'm more of a planned person, me. So what we need to do is we need to capture, so... Version one of what we're doing, so it's a you know it's a multi-step process, but step one, our sort of our minimum viable product, and uh, to use the buzzword du jour, is just a translation, like a lift and shift of what exists in Perl to JavaScript without any new features, without any new anything. Just take what we have and bring that library over. And then we have just a dumb library, and then we can build a web interface and a command line interface, and we can add new features and we can make it cool. But we need to have a thing to make cool first. And and so, just to say the words, because you haven't said them yet, we are talking about XKPassWD, but it's a Perl module called crypt colon slash, I hate this name, crypt colon colon HSXKPassWD. That's the name of the Perl module. So we're getting, we got to get it off of Perl is the most important thing to do. Then we get to play with all current. the other stuff. Yes. Yeah, so, so we need to write it in JavaScript. So we need to capture the structure of it in the Perl code in such a way that I can basically, me, so that it's easy to translate from that Perl design into a JavaScript design. And if I do, if I do the communication clear enough, maybe I don't have to do all the coding. <laughs> That's the goal. <laughs> but I have to do the communication a bit clearly. So what we need is a standards compliant, uh, like a standardized, recognized way of representing the design, like something that is not me made up, but that is actually a thing within the software industry, I could do a wall of text, right? You can describe it in English, right? Anything you want, you can describe in English. But that's, I find that hard to do. I find the pain in the backside to do. And it's even harder to use. It's like, yeah, I hand you a, wall, a big slab of text and I say, go do this. You're like, ugh. Right, right, right. Requirements documentation so, is what we always called it. Yeah. Well, requirements should build into the design. That's the icky bit beforehand. In this case, the requirement is a one-liner. Make the Perl be JavaScript. Well, so no, unusual. no, 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 no. That's the top, that's the way requirements analysis or design works. Is you start with that top-level thing. The success is there is a JavaScript module instead of a Perl script module. But in order to get there, you've got this requirement. In order to get there, you've got this requirement. So you've it builds up from the top down. If that makes sense, it builds down. <laughs> True. Okay. Yeah, that is fair. But again, it's a slightly different case because we're porting rather than starting from scratch, right? If the answer was make a password manager or sorry, make a password generator, we'd have a lot more thinking to do. Right. So the answer is a picture. I like the answer of a picture. I love And diagrams. not just any old picture. Yeah, not just any old picture. There is a standard language for pictures called the Unified Modeling Language or UML which is a very, very large spec. 
But one of the things within that very, very large spec is a thing called a class diagram, which is specifically designed for expressing the classes that should make up some code, what should be in those classes, and how those classes relate to each other, i.e. a nice design for an object-oriented JavaScript library. Oh, that sounds perfect. And because it's standards compliant and stuff, there's actually a really useful skill to be able to read UML diagrams. Because if you poke around the open source internet long enough and you start reading people's documentation, you'll start to recognize that the diagrams are UML diagrams. Yeah, so not only, it, just as you've been doing through this whole course, you're not only going to teach us how to do what you need us to be able to understand in order to meet BART's requirements, you're actually going to teach us a skill that's portable in learning to program. Exactly. Stealthily. And the thing, <laughs> sneak it up on you, sneaky knowledge. So UML is designed to be all-encompassing. It's designed to be um, very general. Uh, so it's not a Perl thing. It's not a JavaScript thing. It's not a Java thing. It's designed to really be all-encompassing. So we're not going to learn all of its features because there's a whole bunch of things it can represent that JavaScript can't. <laughs> So we're just going to pick out the bits that are relevant to us because that will A, make this segment doable uh, as opposed to it being like a semester-long course. And, you know, it's just, that's all we need. So that's what we'll do. Um, So there are links to the Wikipedia page for UML in general and class diagrams in specific for anyone who wants to go read more. Uh, but really, I like to think of the class diagram as pseudocode in pictures. Okay. Because pseudocode is language agnostic, right? It's a way of expressing, I want to loop over this until this. Well, this is a way of saying, I want these classes to exist and I want them to have these properties, but it's not in any way language-y. It's, it's purely pseudo, purely generic. So one of so, the big advantages of this, is my, my first instinct when I saw we were going to do diagrams is to say, hey, Bart, you know what my favorite diagramming tool is? And that's not the right answer. Right. The the right answer is this standards compliant. This is what programmers use. We're going to use the same thing. And it's language agnostic learning as well. Yes. Now, there are UML templates for pretty much every diagramming tool I've ever used. So you can certainly pick your favorite tool. And the chances are very high that if you Google name of tool plus UML class diagram, you will find a template or a palette or whatever the appropriate way your diagrammer of choice has for giving you presets of some sort. Okay, so so there isn't just one way to make UML diagrams, UML class diagrams? No, because the rules are basically, like the rules are designed along the way of make a box that has three parts and you put this bit in this bit and this bit in this bit and then you have arrows and if the arrow head is triangular it means this and if the arrow head is diamond shaped it means that so whatever tool you, you could do it with pen and paper as long as you're careful of drawing your arrow heads i think that'll be the hardest thing you know, diamond shaped arrow heads are not easy to draw uh, but you can use any tool you want as long as you stick to the so throughout the notes i sort of describe what it looks like because really you can make it look like that using any tool you like. The, the important thing is that it looks like that. I'm so excited. I just opened my favorite diagramming tool, diagrams.net, and I typed in UML and it went, here's some templates. Aha, I bet you there's sequence diagrams. I bet you there's class diagrams. There's loads of stuff in UML, I'm guessing. Probably. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's universal. So there we go. Right. So we are going to look at three specific things in terms of UML class diagrams. We are going to learn about the relationships between classes, and there's three relationships we care about. I think there's six in total. We're going to ignore the other three. So we're going to learn about aggregations, compositions, and inheritance. We're going to learn how to mark our classes as abstract, and we're going to remind ourselves what that even means. And then we're going to look at how to add detail into classes using what UML has abstracted away to the word member, but what you and I know is attributes and functions. Okay. Again, it's language agnostic. So at the very basic level, a UML class diagram, the atom of the diagram is the class. So that is the unit is the class. And then you make multiple classes and you connect them up to each other. So a class is drawn as a box with three horizontally stacked segments or rows or I don't know how you what word you feel. Basically Lines. three boxes. <laughs> yeah, there's three boxes yeah. inside the box. Yeah. And basically, that's your class, and then you put stuff into those boxes, and you use arrows and lines to connect them together, and that is your class diagram. Can I interrupt you? Obviously, the lines. Ooh, yeah. Um, 
there's going to be a lot of classes in this library. So are you, how do they all get aggregated together? There isn't just one class diagram, right? Well, no, the one diagram, sorry, the atom is the class, but that means that you will have a diagram with, say, whatever amount of classes you need, right? So it's like, if you're doing a, if, if you're doing a state diagram, the atom is a state, and then you have multiple states, and you join them with lines. Well, in this case, the atom is the class, so we have multiple classes. Wait, you just said the atom is a class, but you have multiple classes. Is it one one class with a bunch of other classes underneath it, or is it, I thought, if it's a okay, library, diagram, it isn't just one class. So, okay, uh, I obviously didn't do a great job explaining what I meant by the atom is. So there is nothing in the diagram that is not in a class. Right. But is everything in the library in one class? No. So you have no, no. A, so the, you would be making a whole bunch of these class diagrams to describe each class well, no, no. in your in your library of XKPSWD? Okay, so that's where I'm failing. Um, the class diagram captures all of the classes because it shows the relationships between them. Okay, okay. So class diagram is like a weather diagram. You didn't say rain diagram. It, you said weather diagram. It's a, it's a generic term for a diagram that shows you classes, and all of the classes in XAPASTWD will be in this one diagram. Yes, which is where the power comes from. So basically it's one diagram that is like the map of... XK possible. Gotcha. Okay. I'm caught up. Okay. So boxes are cloud. So the diagram is going to be a collection of boxes. And each of those boxes is going to have three segments. And then we're going to have lines connecting the boxes and more detail in each of the three segments. So usually when you're designing code, the first thing you're thinking of is what are the conceptual chunks of my whatever it is I'm doing. So that means you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to have a class for this, I'm going to have a class for that, and then this class is going to be inherited from this class, or this class is going to be somehow related to that class. And so the first thing you'll end up with is a collection of just the classes. And so when I'm starting off with UML, I will have boxes with very, very little detail in them. But the first thing to appear on my empty whatever, canvas, whatever you want to call it, will be a collection of boxes. And I'll start jiggling them around and connecting them together. And then when I have them all connected together, I'll come in later and fill in the detail. And then I might change my mind on things. But the first thing will be the boxes, then the detail. So boxes, relationships, detail. Okay. And so we're going to walk through it in that sort of way when we're talking about it. So the first thing we care about is the relationship between our classes. So we're going to say there's going to be a class for this. And we won't worry our pretty little heads about what goes in that class. We're just going to say, yeah, yeah, that's... That's taken care of. We have represented that concept. And then how does that relate to all the other concepts that make up the whole? And then we worry about the relationships first. And to ease us into this, I'm going to start with the easiest relationship, which is inheritance. So if you have some code that represents something that is quite generic, you can effectively import that code into another class so that it gets all of that functionality for free. Or we say we inherit from the class that has the functionality. So you might have a class that represents all vehicles because all vehicles can be turned left, turned right, accelerated and braked. But then you might have another class for SUV because you have lower tailgate, which doesn't make sense if you don't have a tailgate. I mean, you know, you, you, sort of a more specific version would be something that inherits from the less specific parent class. Okay, okay. And and so in our JavaScript experience, the magic or the, the keyword is the word extend. So when you say class, my class extends some other class, you are making an inheritance relationship. Okay. But the word so, extends. Does so the it. SUV extends the vehicle to add the extra detail of having a tailgate. Correct. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So whenever you see in your code, something extends something, you know that on the UML class diagram, it's going to be an inheritance relationship. Okay. And the way you draw an inheritance relationship is with a solid line between the two classes and a fully filled in triangular arrowhead. And it the arrowhead is touching the parent. So the one okay. you inherit from is where the arrowhead goes. Okay. And so... The first example I have is a an example where we have a class, which I have called car, 
which has two child classes called Crossover and Sedan. I picked the American words. We call one of them a saloon. Anyway, and so you'll see in the example that car is the parent. So the arrowheads arrive at car and the arrows come from Sedan and Crossover. Now, in your diagram, it's uh, car is above Crossover and Sedan. Is that always true? Or do you end up with things going up upside down in cases? Like, could Crossover oh, be drawn yeah. above car? Yes, the boxes can be anywhere. And okay. as you start to have lots of relationships, that will happen. messy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay, that's what That I was will thinking. happen. Okay, so if I, if I think of it as the crossover is inheriting the uh, the attributes of the car. Is attributes the right word? That is, yeah, okay. that is correct. I got lucky. Uh, if if uh, the crossover is inheriting the attributes of the car and it's extending the attributes of the car, it points towards the car with a solid triangular yes. arrow. Yes. Okay. And this relationship we have discussed in this series using the common phrase "isa." So we say that it is an "isa" relationship. Sedan is a car. SUV isn't in the example crossover. Is a car. So this is an "isa" relationship. Right. Right. Now, sometimes when you're building your classes. A car is a real thing, a sedan is a real thing, so that's perhaps not the world's best example, but a lot of times when you abstract stuff away, the thing you abstract to is a useful a useful container for functionality, but it doesn't make any sense to say my variable equals new whatever the parent class is called, because the parent class is just an abstraction that in order for it to be useful, it needs to be extended to become something real. So an example would be you might have a class vehicle that you would never say my vehicle equals new vehicle. Instead, you would have to say class car extends vehicle and then say my Tesla equals new car. Okay. Okay. Because vehicle right. is just too generic. It doesn't have any properties of its own. Exactly. It just okay. doesn't make any sense. It's like philosophically, no, you can't have one of those. That doesn't make sense. So how do you mark on the diagram? No, you can't have one of those. It doesn't make sense. Well, the answer is, in programming, we describe that kind of a class as an abstract class because it's capturing abstract functionality, which you then must inherit from. And so in UML class diagrams, we call abstract an example of what's called a class annotation. And so that means it goes with the name into that top third of the, our The word box. abstract goes with the annotation? Or is the annotation? So the word abstract is an annotation. Other annotations are possible, but they don't apply to JavaScript. So for us, there is just one possible annotation, the word abstract. Okay, well, I like that. And so you're pointing right at vehicle and going, this one's abstract, so don't worry your pretty little head. You're not going to learn anything here. Move on. <laughs> or, no, what you're actually saying is to use this, we need you to make a subclass. Right. This right. class can only be subclass. Right. And the notation for, or the, the rule for the UML diagram, the, the visual rule is that an annotation is surrounded by double chevrons. So left arrow, left arrow, whatever your annotation is, right arrow, right arrow, and it goes into the title of the class above the name. So it's in the top of the three boxes above the name with the little chevrons to say, this is not a class, class called abstract. This is a class that is abstract. Okay. So okay. That's, that's the rule. So as I say, any tool, right? Any tool that can draw a box and draw chevrons, you can make one of these UML diagrams in, as long as you have the ability to do the box, the chevrons, and the arrows of the right shape. So in our second example, we've made a class vehicle, and we have given it the abstract um, annotation, and we have lines coming from car. And then for some more detail, we've also had sedan and crossover continue to inherit from car. So now we have more of a structure, right? So you get the idea how these class diagrams could start to build up. So we've now, you know, we now have a more realistic class hierarchy or you have the abstract vehicle that gets inherited by car and truck. And then you have crossover and sedan still inheriting from car. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I do so like that it's drawn so neatly though. And I know it's not going to be later. <laughs> Oh no, they they start off very neat while they're simple, and mm -hmm. then then they don't stay that way. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like so many things. Um, okay, so the next group of relationships is what we, what I in English would have always lumped together as an Haza relationship, but UML is way more specific than Bart. So I've just talked about Hazas, but UML makes you think more deeply, and it 
has two different relationships for what I've always Hang imagined. You've been saying you've been saying is a, and all of a sudden you threw in has a. What is a has a? So a has a is where you have a class that contains within it an instance of another class. So imagine you have a class to represent a car, and that will contain an instance of the class representing carburetor. If okay. It, no, no, let's not go there. Let's go with uh, <laughs> How about motor wheel? because we're electric. Okay. Or wheel, four instances of wheel, generally speaking, those three is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So there's a has a, the car has a battery. Gotcha. The car has a traction motor for me, two traction motors for you. Um, okay. So that's a has a relationship. Gotcha. And in UML, we actually have to be more specific. UML actually makes us think a little bit more deeply, which is why UML has two words for what in my mind was always one idea. So UML gives us the word aggregation and composition. So UML makes us think, is this an aggregation or is this a composition? And I'm going to go with them backwards. So I'm going to do composition first, because basically composition is the tightest possible relationship and an aggregation is a looser relationship. And the way I've managed to get this straight in my head is I think of one key question. If I delete an instance of the containing class, do the instances of the contained class get deleted too, or do they make sense existing on their own? And that sounds very wordy there, so let me make that a bit more real. Actually, no, before I say that, if the answer to that question is yes, it's compositional because it is composing the containing class. And if it's just, well, yeah, I have you now, but if I go away, you get to keep existing, then it's an aggregation. And I spent ages trying to come up with an example, and I've decided the best one I could think of is a person. So if we take person as the containing class and we add a tattoo to that person, that is a compositional relationship. When that person goes away, that tattoo goes away too. Right? That tattoo is a part of the person. It is inseparable from the person. It is literally etched onto them. It is. It composes the person. Isn't that an instance of a class, though? I could have the same tattoo uh, as sure. you, and I die. The, the class still exists. <laughs> okay, but I did say, okay, so in my question, it's if an instance of the containing class is destroyed, do, does the instance oh. of the contained class get deleted oh. too? Oh, okay, I didn't catch that subtlety. Okay. So, so you're right, we can both have tattoos. You could have five people with six tattoos. One of the people has two tattoos, they go away, two of the tattoos poof out of existence. But the other tattoos on the other people are fine. Even if they're all of the same little baby unicorn. Because yes. they're different instances. They're different so instances, the instances, right? Just so that's to be compositional. Because the they yes. don't make so sense. So it is literally a part of. Okay. It's like, it is it. so much a part it's of me that if I of. go away, this goes away too. Composed of, exactly. Okay. The other relationship is much looser. So when myself and the better half finally get around to getting officially married, we will each have a wedding ring. So I will have an instance of wedding ring that is mine. And mm-hmm. so if you were to describe class person and make, you know, bar, my Bart equals new person, mm-hmm. you could say, Bart.addWeddingRing, and you would add an instance of the wedding ring class to me. Mm-hmm. And when I pop my clogs, I can leave that in my will to somebody else. Okay. Therefore, that wedding ring has an existence independent of the fact that it happens to be associated with an instance of a person at the moment. Okay, and so it is, is an instance an of wedding ring because there are other wedding rings. They could be the identical wedding ring, but they're not that wedding ring. But it still exists. Correct. And that's called exactly. aggregation. So, yes. So... If you broaden it out to jewelry, you know, the aggregation could be that I have, you know, four necklaces, two rings and whatever. And when I go away, those those instances continue to exist. Okay. They're not part of me. They're just with me. So they're an aggregation, not a composition. By the way, in Bart's show notes, I don't think he said it uh, completely as clearly as he does in his show notes. He has trouble keeping these straight in his head. So one of the things we did was we made those two sentences bulleted. There's italics in there, and so you could just go back and look at this and go, okay, which one's compositional, which one's aggregational? Got it. Okay. Yeah. Now, so that's it in English. So how does it look in the picture? Well, because remember I said that composition is stronger, and I keep saying that over and over to get that into my brain. Composition is stronger. So the compositional relationship is done with a filled-in arrow. Uh, sorry, a filled-in diamond-shaped arrowhead. 
So it's filled in. And the arrowhead goes on the class that does the containing. So just like the inheritance was on the parent, the arrowhead for the composition is on the one that does the containing. And the same with the aggregation. So it's That's the, not considered a parent class. also? Used a different word for it. It's not a parent? Well, parent, see, parent is always used for inheritance, parent and child. So oh, we use containing and contained. Oh, right, right, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, so, so that's another thing. By t- by seeing that diamond shape, that tells me we're ta- we aren't talking about inheritance. The filled-in uh, triangular arrow is about inheritance. Uh, if it's got the diamond, then we're talking about this has a relationship, which will be a diamond yes. that is either filled in or not. Filled in if it's compositional? Nope. Yes. Oh, no, yes. Perfect. I got it No, right. no, yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely okay. perfect. So because composition is stronger, it's filled in, and an aggregation is like a loose association, so it's empty. That's how I remember it, and that's so okay. far, for the last 24 hours, that has stuck in my brain that way. <laughs> I, I, the amount of times I have to go to that Wikipedia page again, because when you're looking at your own class diagram, you're fine, because it's just a mnemonic. Okay. But if someone hands you a class diagram you've never seen before, you really do actually have to go and check the spec to make sure you haven't forgotten. Okay. But, uh, okay. Yeah. So we have an example in the show notes showing class person as a square box with person in the top field, a class tattoo with a line coming out of it and a fully filled in arrow where it touches the person, a diamond shaped, a fully filled in diamond shaped arrow. And then we have class ring with a fully, sorry, with an outline diamond shaped arrow where it touches class person. Okay. I'm going to remember it that diamonds tend to be more white and so it's not filled in. <laughs> So whatever like whatever you can diamond. do to make it stick, and I know diamond whatever rings are aggregational. <laughs> now, before to be honest, I I wrote the show notes with a different example first, and the other example I loved far too much to take out of the show notes. So we're going to walk through the other example because it lets us make a more real world example that brings more concepts together. It builds into a nice way to round out this section. And I'm going to so slow Bart I, way down because he's going to go into some physics stuff here, sciencey stuff. Yeah, really, as I was thinking to myself, what is the difference between aggregation and composition? What real world thing is different before I came up with tattoos and rings? And immediately my brain, because I'm a scientist, my brain jumped to the atom of all things. So if you go back in the Wayback Machine to whatever, I don't know what grade you learn science in in American schools. I didn't learn it until secondary school here because we don't teach science. It depends on which science. Well, in this case, I guess it would have been your chemistry and physics yeah okay. i guess i would have been 16 before this high got school. to me anyway right yeah let's say high school we go back in the way back machine to high school so we think of an atom as being a nucleus and then some electrons whizzing about and depending on whether you're early in your education or later in your education we talk about rings of electrons or clouds of electrons but the electrons are on the outside that that bit we don't change our mind on the electrons are on the outside and there's n number of them and then you have this middle bit of the atom And that middle bit, which we call the nucleus, is made up of protons and neutrons. But because they always go in the middle, we have a word for them called a nucleon. The nucleus is made up of nucleons. And I'm assuming we use that word because we didn't know what they were until much later. Uh, As we keep breaking things down, they they get new names as you get down inside. Yeah, exactly. So when Rutherford said nucleon to me, but I don't remember the, the word. So nucleon has protons and neutrons inside it. Well, so nucleon is a name for proton or neutron. So the nucleus oh. is made up of nucleons. Oh, so the, they're the not inside isn't... the nucleon. No, so the nucleon is just like a general word for a thing that makes up the middle of an atom. And we have we now know there are exactly two nucleons, proton or neutron. Okay. So if you have eight nucleons, four of them might be protons and four of them might be neutrons. Ah, but... ah okay. Okay, I did misunderstand that. All right. Now, as we got better at physics, we've discovered that you can't break the electron apart. The electron is a fundamental particle. It, there is, it doesn't get any smaller. But you can take an atom and smash it apart, and then you get a proton and or a neutron, and they can exist entirely independently, right? So if you have a class atom, you have an instance of a class atom, say it's a helium atom that gives you two of each, so two protons and two neutrons, you have four nucleons in total. So you have a helium atom, you smash it hard, you go to CERN, you wallop it, you then end up with the electron going whizzing off on its own and the protons and the neutrons whizzing off on their own. So the atom is gone, right? You've you've literally smashed the atom, 
but the electron, the protons, and the neutrons still exist. Mm. So from the atom's point of view, they were compositional. Uh, right? The atom is gone, but the, the electron no. and the proton and the neutron still exist. No, they were aggregational. Thank you. You are completely correct. You are completely <laughs> correct, and I completely misspoke. And that is actually probably really good to po- to prove how much trouble I have with these concepts. No, but no, but that's good. I'm excited that I was like, no, I think because they aren't composed. Even though protons and neutrons compose an atom, <laughs> protons, neutrons, and electrons compose an atom. That's not the right word. It has to go the other way because they can stand on their own. Because they can stand on their own, it makes sense to have them on their own. And then I thought, okay, that's a good example of aggregation. Mm-hmm. But there's right next to me, right, right next to me is an example of the other as well. So the electron can't be split up. What about those protons and neutrons, right? It doesn't matter which of those two you pick. They're actually, they're made of the same stuff. Any nucleon. Rearranged. Any nucleon, it is made of smaller things. They're called quarks. Not after the bartender in Star Trek, <laughs> the other way around. But I believe it's a word invented by James Joyce for his novel Ulysses. So that's fun. So your quarks do indeed make up your protons and your neutrons, but the quarks are different. If you smash apart a proton, you do not get quarks that live on their own. They cannot exist outside the proton and the neutron. Ah. So the quarks are compositional. So that when the proton and neutron are destroyed into pure energy, the quarks are gone. They You can't have them on your own, which is why for a long time we didn't realize that the proton and the neutron had inner pieces because the pieces evaporate. Oh, okay. They disappear. But that's why when Gelman figured out how the quarks make it up, suddenly we were able to do way, way, way more because basically there's three types of quark and we call them three colors and they have to make the equivalent of white for it to be a stable nucleon. And so it's amazing. Understanding quarks really lets us understand particle physics, but the quarks don't exist on their own which is kind of amazing we discovered them because they don't exist on their own. So wait a minute. Now, I, I know this has nothing to do with UML diagrams, but I'm going to ask it anyway. A pro- mm-hmm. Protons and neutrons are made up of quarks, but a proton, yes. a proton and a neutron can exist on their own and they don't have quarks inside anymore? No, no, they still have, no, no, they always, no, so they're always made up of the quarks, but if you stop the proton existing, if you destroy the proton, you don't get the quarks out. Oh. So when we destroyed the atom, we got the protons and neutrons and the electron out. When you destroy the proton, you don't get the quarks. Okay, so the proton and neutron, when they get busted apart from the atom, when we take them over to CERN and smash them, they still have mm-hmm. quarks inside them. But you're saying if the proton got destroyed, the quark would disappear. Quarks. The quarks disappear. Okay. which makes them very different. And in the UML diagram of the atom, that means that they are compositional to the nucleons. So we can actually draw that into a beautiful diagram because we have an example of an abstract class, which is our nucleon, Mm -hmm. because the nucleon is either a proton or a neutron. You can't have a nucleon on its own. It's either a a proton or a neutron. A collective name. So that means that we actually get to have a class atom sitting at the top, which has... Um, a um, aggregational relationship with the nucleon and electron, but the nucleon has an inheritance relationship with the proton and the neutron and a compositional relationship with the quark. So in that one diagram, we actually have all of our different types of arrow and the abstract. Uh, so in annotation. order to understand Bart's diagram, all you have to understand is physics. <laughs> it's still really fun. Or... I still liked it. If I, I'm glad I read the show notes ahead of time because I'd be going, what? But I went off and studied all this so that I could see if I could understand it by the time we got here. Well, the fun thing is, if you prefer, if you're better at learning software engineering, you now get free quantum physics. And if you're better at physics, you get some free software engineering. <laughs> so it can work both ways. So this is actually a very useful example because it shows us what we're missing one more aspect of these relationships. We've captured a lot of the ways in which these classes are related to each other, but we're missing some subtlety that the physics has that we haven't captured in our picture of the physics. So an atom can contain any amount of electrons. It can be zero, in fact. It's called an ion. If you take if you, if you take the electrons away from the atom, it has a charge and it's it's an ion, but it still exists, so it's perfectly fine. So the atom can have zero or more electrons. And you can kind of keep piling them on and just end up with an ion of the other kind with the other kind of charge. So effectively it's zero to infinity is how many electrons an atom can have. 
Really? Now, an atom without, yeah, they become ever more heavily charged and ever more determined to cease being in that state. Mm-hmm. And they, they will do their absolute darndest to get out of that unnatural we state. Found but they can limit, be in huh? that state. Okay. Yeah. I mean, technically, theoretically, it's infinity, but I think you may need all the energy in the universe to hold it there. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a big enough lever I can lift the world, you know, that kind of a thing. But an atom without a nucleus literally doesn't exist. So there there must be one or more nucleons in an atom, or it isn't an atom. So there's a one to any, there's a one to star relationship. And we can keep piling on nuclei into the atom. Now, the more we pile in, the more the more likely it is to collapse in a giant heap of radioactive explosion. But we can, in theory, keep piling them in. And again, you know. We'll assume we have infinite physics capabilities. We can, in theory, keep pointing them in. So that's actually a one to infinity relationship. Now, the electron has no bits, so we're done there. How many quarks in a nucleon? Well, remember I was saying that quarks have a color, red, green, blue? In order for a nucleon to exist, it has to have one red, one green, one blue. That means all nucleons have three quarks. They always have oh. exactly three I thought they had one down. That is another. So an up, you can have a white. That is another way of differentiating them. They they have a couple of properties. So that's not their color property. They but up and down are other properties of quarks. There's I think there's twelve quarks we know about. I think at the last check. Now bear in mind my physics degree now comes with an expired. But uh, my physics degree was I studied nuclear physics in my final year of my degree, but it was in two thousand and one. Okay. And science has not stood still. So I am prepared to <laughs> be still beating by me. a current. My last physics was in uh, 1980, so you still win. I know for a fact things have changed since then. Because <laughs> back in the 1980s, we didn't know whether or not the um, a neutrino had mass. And now we know it does. That's right. So, I know, Okay, I know, where was I? I? So okay. we know there are exactly three quarks in a nucleon. Okay. So that those numbers are known as cardinality. So how many of we just we use the fancy pants word cardinality. It's not just a software engineering term, it's used in other places too, but it means cardinality is numbers. That it has a number. Yeah. The number of, I guess, is, is okay. a better description of what it means. So we need to be able to write into our diagram these cardinalities. And this is another place where I believe XML is just UML is just trying to break my brain (laughs) because the relationships are directional. So there's always actually every line in the diagram that is either, sorry, every line in the diagram with a diamond on it has cardinalities, right? Inheritance does not have cardinalities. Like a neutron inherits from nucleon. There's no cardinality there. Oh, okay. But nucleon contains, so there is cardinality. Once you have the word contains, there's a cardinality. So the diamond arrows have cardinalities. And you have to look at it from both sides. So the two questions are, how many nucleons in an atom? And how many atoms can a single nucleon belong to? Oh, okay. It goes both ways. You have to think about it in both ways. So the end result will be two numbers on the line. Now, where would you think the numbers go? Because... This is the bit I don't agree with, but I didn't write the spec. The number to tell you how many atoms a nucleon has go on the atom side of the line. It's the nucleon's point of view, but it's written as far away from the nucleon as it can possibly be. So everyone's hmm. always squinting into the far distance is how I've decided to teach myself this. <laughs> it actually kind of made sense to, to me until end. you told me I, I should be confused. Oh, bugger. It's <laughs> the last thing I want to do. That's okay. My I'm sure I'll, be fl- I'll flip it around and be confused all by myself without your help. So that's the way I'm trying to remember. You always have to look into the distance. So the nucleon's point of view is written next to the atom, and the atom's point of view is listed next to the nucleon. And the way we can write the cardinalities, there's actually quite a few acceptable syntaxes, but I've, I've limited it in the show notes to ones that are not duplicative. So you can have star, which means any amount which to us programmers is zero or more. You can write a number. So one is exactly one. Two is exactly two. Three is exactly three. So that's easy. And then you can use two periods, not three, to represent a range. So zero dot dot one is zero to one. 
Zero two, to one or zero dot, dot, or one? Four. Well, like, okay, so zero or one is zero to one. So that's a special case. Well, but if it was zero dot dot two, is that zero or two or zero to two? Zero, zero two two. So I think we should say it in the show notes two. Well, that's the X dot dot. Actually, you're right. That's mm. yeah. The show notes need actually. That's the X dot dot Y. Um, <laughs> because regular expressions have zero or one as a thing, I put it as a separate entry. I don't know if that's more or less confusing to people. I, I expect it's less to see... confusing. I'm uh, more confusing to have it in there. So I think we should take it out. So let let's back up because there's no way anybody listening can be following what we just said. <laughs> if they're reading, Perfect. they might okay, be and watching the show notes yeah. changing. Okay, so I'll get rid of that line. So let's say it again. So if we have any number, zero so or star more, means any it's number. star. Yeah. Right. A number is a number, right? right? So one means one, two means two, three means three. Yeah. And then the last piece of the puzzle is the dot dot symbol, which is basically from dot dot two inclusive. So two dot dot four is two, three or four. Okay. Zero dot dot one is zero or one. Because okay. purely because zero two one and zero or one are exactly the same thing. It's a range. Okay. The, so the only one you would ever do uh, just typing in the number is the number one, because that's in your list here. <coughs> um, okay, then maybe make that X, because two, three, four, the number is itself, right? So in the case of quark you. to nucleon, it's exactly three. So it's exactly range, that number. Exactly. Okay. Exactly All right, so I'm going to say it one more time because I think we've uh, we've <laughs> jumped around a lot. X, or, I'm sorry, star. Star is any number. X is exactly that number. X dot dot mm -hmm. star is what again? That number to infinity. That number to infinity. Or at least. So at least the way I would number. say that in English is at least that number. Okay, so two dot dot star would be, it has to be at least two, but it can be more. And then x dot yeah. dot y is everything in that range from x to y. Inclusive. Inclusive. Okay. Perfect. All right. Perfect. So if we go I'm glad we have show notes. Our, <laughs> it, it, to be honest, yeah, and also pictures. Well, then again, it is literally about pictures. Well, there is so pictures. if we go back, if we go to our diagram five, we have our fully finished diagram of the atom classes. And so we can see that from the quark's point of view, it belongs to exactly one nucleon because the one is sitting in the far away from the quark. We can see that from the nucleon's point of view, it has exactly three quarks because the three is sitting on the far side of the line from the nucleon. See, that we still see makes that sense to me, Bart. The three is right Great, next to the fantastic. quark. fantastic. The three is next to the quark, so there's three quarks. I hope that sticks in my brain. <laughs> Good. Just remember, you wish there were three quarks. There was only one quark, but... Uh... Yeah, that's okay. true, actually. Yeah, Alman Zimmer is so great, I would happily have three of them. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so then we have the, the, the nucleon belongs to zero or one atoms, right? It's either in an atom or it's pootled off on its own because we smashed the atom to pieces. So it's zero dot dot one, right? Perfectly fine to have a nucleon by itself. Okay. We can also, from the atom's point of view, it must have at least one nucleon or it literally isn't an atom. Right. But it could have up to infinity as far as we're concerned. We're leaving it, we're leaving aside the fact that it becomes ever more radioactive and it really, really wants to fly apart. Right? We're, okay. We're, we're not going to get that specific. We don't know what the other number would be, so we say one dot dot star in our case. Mm -hmm. So that's from the atom's point of view, you can have as many nucleons, but it must have at least one. The atom could have zero to infinity electrons, and the electron can actually be shared among multiple atoms. This is this is something Oof. people may not realize. But the reason a metal conducts electricity is because the electrons are shared by all of the metal atoms. So the electrons really? are free to move about. Yeah, they're just, they're all together. Yeah, we're all one big happy commune. <laughs> and the other way they get shared is in chemical bonds. So you can make a chemical bond by if you have two atoms and they share one electron between them, then they're actually kind of stuck together because they're both holding onto that one electron. So it's mine, it's mine. So if you try to pull them apart, they actually want to stick together because they're hanging on to that electron for dear life. So that is actually one of the chemical bonds is sharing electrons. So the atom can belong, can have multiple electrons and the electron can have multiple atoms. So that's a star-star relationship. Okay. I think the diagram Which is, makes sense. And I was able to find a way to get all of these things into our example. <laughs> I'm just picturing how I'm writing my part of the show notes that I will, when I publish, I'm going to tell people free particle physics with your, your UML diagrams. 
It kind of makes it more fun to me, actually. Let's throw in some particle physics. So we now have all the hard stuff out of the way. And I, I, one reason for doing the show notes this way is because in real life, you do the diagram first with the, the classes and the relationships. And the other reason is because this is the hard part, and I didn't want to finish on the hard part. Okay. So the last thing to do then is to fill in the detail. Right, so we have two more boxes, right? Each of our boxes has three segments, and we've only looked at the top segment, the name and the annotation. So what goes in the other two boxes? Well, in UML speak, remember, UML is a generic language, so it uses generic phraseology. UML describes everything in a class as being a member of the class. And then it distinguishes those members as being attributes or functions. Now, in JavaScript world, Attribute isn't actually too bad a word. We've used it ourselves. We also have used the word property, and we have also used the word instance variable and the word class variable because they're actually the attribute can either be static or not static. But so all of those are synonyms for each other, right? Property, attribute, instance variable, static variable. I think that's all of the ones I said. And they're just called attributes in UML. Now, for us JavaScript programmers, function is perfect. We use the word function, UML uses the word function. We are done here. But there are other languages, and other languages draw a distinction between functions and methods. So if you were programming in one of those languages with methods, you would need to mentally say, UML function means method or function in my language of choice. But we JavaScripters have it easy, so we don't have to translate that one. So classes have members. Those members are attributes or functions. Great. So the top box is, sorry, the middle box is where the attributes go. So there are the variables that belong to our class. And the bottom box is where the functions will go. But we'll focus on the variables first. So the simplest possible way to name your variables is literally to list them in the box. One variable per line. So you could say, Person is the name of the class. One variable might be name. Another variable might be date of birth. And you could just put name, date of birth. Right? That would be a perfectly valid UML diagram. But realistically, if you're going to use this as a map to write actual code, you need to be a bit more specific. And the first way you can be specific is you can say whether it's a public or a private attribute. And private is done with the minus symbol. Plus is sorry, public is done with the plus symbol, and you prefix the name of the variable with minus or plus. So minus some secret internal value means that some secret internal value is private, plus date of birth means date of birth is public. Okay. So far, so good. Yeah, I guess it, it sounded like you no, said the, it backwards once, but I don't think you did. I think I just it's a lot to keep track of trying to remember what static and these are you're you're talking about static variables right now both yes so whether it's static or not static doesn't matter to whether it's public or private right they can but the the minus means private the plus means public whether okay. it's static or not doesn't matter we'll okay. get the static in a minute um we can also our variables in the real world well in javascript we can give them type information and so you do that by popping a colon after the name and then putting in the type. So you could have plus, um, hang on, me, sorry, just want to make sure I say this right. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's not after and it's, what am I talking about? Data in, types can be added by adding a colon yeah. and then the data type after the attribute name. I don't think yeah, you I am an example wrong. of that. that is, oh, that's backwards. No, that's be. That's because it's, that is the syntax of the language I'm not telling you about this week. Oh, uh, in actual UML, <laughs> yeah, please. In actual UML, it's simply this type goes in front of the name of the variable, so it becomes minus string a private uh, a private string plus date a public date. So yeah, I was describing the syntax for the super secret thing I'm going to reveal in the end. <laughs> okay, okay. So say th say this with with vigor this time. What are, what are okay, we doing now? So, We've got minus for if private you want to put a type plus for public. And then either the name or type space name. So either just plus date of birth or plus date date of birth. Okay. In your example, you say minus string and plus number. That's why I thought the type 
that's what you meant by type. That is what I mean. So date is a type, string is a type, number is a You said type, date of birth. Boolean is a type. You said date of birth. Date right, of birth so date is of birth is a, is a name. Sorry, I was trying to pick a realistic name to go with something of type date. Uh, height we're gonna say number. Th- we're going to say this again, but the, the syntax is plus number space date of birth or, or height. You were saying it so the other way around. To be you generic, I know I said it the other way around because the syntax in the language we're not talking about today is the other way around. I'm really sorry about that. The, that <laughs> paragraph is terrible. Okay, well, I'm still trying to get it back together. Looking at the diagram that you've drawn, it says my class in the top little box, and then in the next section down, it says uh, minus string, a private class string. So you've told it minus to indicate that it's private, and then the word string means that's the type, and then after that is the name. Yes. Okay. That's it exactly. Okay. So visibility type name. Got it. Visibility being public or private. Okay. So, yeah. And I actually realized that my my actual English isn't as bad as I thought because I was reading on to the paragraph about functions. So I, I was, was going to say, it was, even making more. A lot, it was making a lot of sense what I was reading. I didn't know where you got lost, but I was fine. You know, I, <laughs> I was the whole page happened. down. It's like, oh, hang on a sec. Why is the word void in this sentence? Oopsie. Uh, it's okay. Sorry about that, folks. I'm clearly out of practice. Of all this. the times we've done this together, that's the first time you've been on the wrong page. That happens to me all the time. I'll be going, what is he talking about? I'm looking at the wrong paragraph. Okay. Yeah, we don't even mean it colloquially. We mean I was literally on the wrong page. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if anybody's okay, right, still following along, there is a, a third way you can tell what things are in that second box. And that is? That is, whether or not it's underlined has a very important meaning. If you underlined it, it means it it is static in our JavaScript language, or it means it belongs to the class, not to instances of the class. So if you have a property that there is one of, and it belongs to the class, then it's underlined. And if the proper, if there's one for every instance, then it's not underlined, and there's one of them for every instance. So we have in our series to now talked about class variables being static variables. So Class, static, underlined. Mm-hmm. Instance variables, not underlined. One of them for every instance. Okay. And that is the sum total of everything we need to know about the middle box. Okay. So, last thing then is to look at the bottom box, which is where the functions go. And the rule is similar in that plus and minus have the same meaning as each other, which is nice of them to be consistent. The other thing that's consistent is that underline means it belongs to the class, not underline means it belongs to the instance. And in order to show you it's a function, you pop some parens onto the end of it, which for us JavaScript people is really, really sensible. We, we like this. If you would like to specify the arguments, you can pop those into the parens, and it really does look like pure JavaScript, even though this is generic UML for any language. But us JavaScripters have it really quite easy. And the last thing we have to specify, right? I like to to tell people to think of a function as a black box. It has a name. You give it some inputs, which is the parameters of the arguments, and then it gives you an output. And so what we need to know is what type is the output. And you represent that in UML by saying colon and then the type that you want it to be. Okay. So if you have a function, if you have a public function that belongs to the instance that, say, is called doublet, that takes one argument number and returns a number, you would say plus doublet, open parens, number n, close parens, colon number. Okay. So my public function, because I have a plus, I'm called doublet, I take one parameter, which is of type number, called n, and I will give you back a number. Okay. So you see how this is a map for writing code? Yeah. Yeah. Where you can say yeah, you the words, have to but in... that would be long and paragraphy. I just like uh, the dumb example I have in the show notes here in diagram seven, which has our name of class, our property, sorry, our um, attributes and our functions. That is just a small box. But to write that in English would be many, many, many paragraphs. Yeah. And it would be ick to read. Now, I have one more, one final small piece of confusion. Well, not confusion, potential confusion to add into the mix. There is one other 
essence a function can have that we need to capture here. So if you are writing a class that you expect to be inherited from, you can put in a placeholder that says, I insist that all of my children implement this function. But this function doesn't exist in me. I'm just insisting it be applied. I'm just insisting that it exists in my children. And the name for that, because it's a similar concept to an abstract class, is an abstract function. There are languages where you can literally have the keyword abstract. You'd say abstract function, my function. JavaScript is not one of those languages. In JavaScript, we have to simulate this behavior by making the function throw an error. But nonetheless, it is a concept, and it's actually a concept XKPassWD uses. And the UML for it is make it italic. So if it's in italic, it means I demand all of my children do this, but I am not capable of doing this myself, which is kind of a do as I say, not as I do. I you love it. Confused. I love it. Oh, you love it. Excellent. <laughs> and that's it. That is the final piece of confusion to add to the mix. So we now have the ability to show what makes up our classes, what classes exist, and how all of those classes relate to each other. And that is a map of, for an object-oriented programming language, that is a map of your code. Now, there's still hard work to make the body of all of those functions. But if you have done the thinking to be able to produce that UML diagram, you are 50% of the way to your finished code, hmm. even though you've just drawn a picture. Because filling it in is the easier bit, I would say. So in your vision a, for uh, XAPassWD.net, or actually just, I'm not going to say that name. I, I can't pronounce the library. it. The library. Just, just the library. The library. You have the library in Perl. <laughs> mm -hmm. That gives you a really good starting point for what all these classes would look like. Yes, it does. I'm basically going to have to go through my own code slash documentation and draw it. So, so the first part of the translation is going to be me. I'm going to take the Perl and translate it to UML. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to take the UML and translate it to JavaScript. What if there's somebody who knows how to read your Perl and your documentation and knows how to make it and would want to learn how to use uh, UML to, to document it? Would that help you if somebody started it? Or is that something um, only Bart can do? To be honest, it's not. I'm not saying it only I can do. I'm saying it's something I want to do as the author of the library. That's the bit where I get to to do my authoring, my auteurness. I, that's, that's the bit but, where I get to do my creativity. But it's just documenting what you already have. So it's not any, well, it's not any invention. No. Ah, yes. Now we have a subtlety here. So the intention is indeed to copy it, but Java and Perl, sorry, JavaScript and Perl are not the same. I know for a fact I'm going to have to do, like translating a poem from one language to another involves creativity. Mm -hmm. Because it won't rhyme when you change the language. Mm -hmm. There are things that make sense in Perl that do not make sense in JavaScript. And I'm going to have to make a creative decision about what is the right JavaScript, not translation, but similar enough. The right. So for everything that can't really be done exactly the same, I there's going to be like five or six possible ways of doing it in JavaScript. And I need to pick one. And I kind of want to, think about that myself and do that bit myself. So the way I'm envisioning it is that I spend a week taking my Perl and making UML diagram, and that is the starting point for the project. And then the chore begins of turn the UML into version 0.1 of the code. I think it's adorable that you think that's going to take a week. <laughs> yeah, okay, it may well be adorable. <laughs> um, Maybe may the week between Christmas and New Year on a off work. Okay. That's plausible. Yeah, That's plausible. plausible. At least. If you didn't have to do any creativity and make decision making, yeah. And if you yeah, remembered would... exactly how you did it before and didn't have to relearn what past Bart was thinking, it's when, did, when did Bart write this? That code. I'm almost afraid to look at the last update time. Um, I think I it's probably did, got yeah, some the, cobwebs the, on it. I was going to say the CPAN would know if I do a Google for. Actually, no, it's linked in the show notes. I don't have to Google for it. I linked it myself. I did it earlier today. I Googled my own thing. There's bound to be a last published date, which is the last time I touched that code. And I dread to think what this is going to say when I go here. Uh, is there a metadata column? Metadata. Metadata. Uh, download 117 megs. Okay. Ah, there's no 
I'm disappointed in, in CPAN. It's not giving me the metadata of when I last did it, but I'll tell you something. It's a long time ago. It's okay. I think it's a decade ago. I think it's a decade ago. Wow. So one of one of the other reasons I, I want to be the one to do this translation is so that I am forced to remember what I did. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I'm just thinking it would like be a fun exercise for somebody who can read Pearl. I don't, I'm not volunteering me by any shape of the imagination to do that. But I just, I know there's people who do know Pearl who might uh, might get a kick out of taking a shot at it. But, uh, but that's cool. Yeah. So, okay. So that is definitely where we're going in the project. But I have a little, there's a surprise part two to this installment. So, what we have learned today is an extremely valuable skill all by itself. The ability to understand UML diagrams is very, very important because they're used all over the place in software. But I didn't make those diagrams using a GUI tool. Those diagrams I made using a plain text markup language, which means those diagrams are versionable in Git because they're not pictures, they're words. Ah. And so I didn't know this, but you told me in the pre-show that I ended up using a tool you already know about. I, you did use a tool I already know about. So there is a markup language for diagrams called Mermaid, and it has a whole bunch of presets for doing like pie charts and flow diagrams and state diagrams and all sorts of things and UML class diagrams. So I used it from the UML class diagrams point of view. But in the archives of the uh, podfee.com website, you used it for something else. Yeah, so um, I talked about a year ago, a little over a year ago, about an open source cross-platform notebook tool called Joplin. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty nifty app. I haven't actually been still using it, but uh, one of the things I discovered going through it is there was this thing called Mermaid. And I'm like, what the heck is that? And discovered you can make diagrams with text. And it uses yeah. the uh, mer uh, mermaid from within it. Mermaid is a separate project. And uh, so I may just play around in, in Joplin again to see how to make diagrams like this. Yeah, I mean, if Joplin does full mermaid, then it can absolutely do these class diagrams. And so you just need to, in your Joplin code, you just need to say class diagram. And then as, a, as the first command in the mermaid code to tell Mermaid I'm making a class diagram, and then you can use the syntax we learn about in the next installment for how you represent the arrows. And to be honest, it's kind of like ASCII art because the uh, triangular arrow, so the filled-in triangular for inheritance is dash, dash, vertical line, angle bracket, <laughs> which is literally looks like a triangle, right? And the one for the diamond is actually a star for the filled-in diamond or a lowercase letter O for the empty diamond. Huh. And so you need to do a little bit of markup to put the cardinalities in. They're in quotation marks. But on the whole, it's actually quite straightforward syntax. And it looks a bit like Markdown is readable as text and as prettified text. Mermaid diagrams are readable as text and they make pretty pictures. So it's it's pretty cool. So the next lesson we're going to learn how to use Mermaid to do UML class diagrams. And as a bonus, you'll just know Mermaid for Everything else Mermaid can do, and Mermaid can do many, many, many more things in class diagrams. Okay, that it that's interesting. I like drag and drop real good. <laughs> you know, let me drag a line from here to here and put put me a a, a diamond on there and fill it in. But uh, I understand what you're saying. If we do it in uh, in a diagramming tool, then it doesn't do us any good from a, a Git perspective. Well, yeah, you can yeah, store no anything you want control. in Git, though. You can, but you don't have, if you do a binary file, you can go back in time and look at the different pictures, but you can't see a diff that tells you anything meaningful. Right. Whereas if it's a markup, when you look at the diff, it'll actually say, oh, I changed this cardinality because it'll show you the line you changed and it's readable. Yeah. And the thing with class diagrams is they evolve with your code because if we add a new feature, the chances are that means there's a new function at the very least. Mm -hmm. So that means the UML diagram needs to be a living document. So... Having it in Git, not as a blob, but as an actual editable, versionable piece of text is actually very powerful for a software engineering project. Okay. Gotcha. So anyway, that's where we're going next. We're going to learn ourselves some Mermaid. And it's it's actually quite a nice language. I'm rather pleased with it. Um, so that is, uh, that's it for today. All right. Well, this was uh, this was fun. It's fun to be back in the saddle. Uh, I am pleased that we actually announced we were going on summer vacation <laughs> that extended to uh, <laughs> November 12th. But uh, what are you going to do? 
Well, I'll well, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a cybersecurity specialist is what happened. That's why our summer vacation went long, by the way, folks, is because I got myself a new job after two attempts. That's right. That's right. I, th- I think we talked about it on uh, the on Chit Chat Lite, but we never talked about it on yes. pro- on uh, programming by cell. So congratulations on that, Bart. That is very cool. But we're, we're done with those excuses now. You've got the job. Let's go. Let's program. <laughs> Like, yeah, and this is, you know, I want to get XA Password with you done. It's been making me cranky that it's not done. So we're, yeah, definitely. I'm keen to get stuck in. We we have gotten ourselves off to a good start here, and we get to do some more fun stuff next time. So until then, happy computing. If you learn as much from BART each week as I do, I'd like you to go over to lets-talk.ie and press one of the buttons over there to help support him. He does 98% of the work here. I'm just the stooge that listens to him and asks the dumb questions. If you go over to lets-talk.ie, you can support him on Patreon, you can donate via PayPal, or you can use one of his referral links. I really hope you'll go over and help him out. In the meantime, you can contact me at Podfeet or check out all of the shows we do over there over at podfeet.com. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.